I'm your host, William Tapley. Also known as the third eagle of the apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here. Just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, October 7th, 2013. No, I will not be talking about the Dodgers today, although I'm happy. <laughs> for the moment. Yeah, things can go badly in baseball, so you try not to gloat. You just sit there and hang on and hope that things continue going well. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, stop, and listen to what people are saying in context to what God's Word says in context so that we can determine as to whether or not somebody is telling us the truth about God or if they are speaking falsely about God. And this is a this is a serious business, although we try to have a little bit of fun along the way. The reason it's a serious business is because of the fact that there's a lot at stake. What's at stake are men's souls, your soul, my soul. And the reason being is this, is that, well... Jesus himself made it clear that broad is the road that leads to destruction, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and narrow is the path that leads to life. And because of the fact that, that Satan is out there working to deceive people, because keep in mind, Jesus said of Satan that he's a liar, that he's a deceiver, and when he lies, he speaks his native language. That being the case, when somebody who says that they're a Christian or is a popular pastor, teacher, or author, or things like that, and they are twisting God's word, ripping it from its context, and saying things about God that, that God's word doesn't say, 
They're not speaking the truth about God. They're speaking the devil's language. The devil's language is lying. And when you're lying about God, you're playing the devil's game. And you're not being taught the truth about God. Jesus is the truth. Instead, when you're hearing lies, you're hearing what the devil wants you to hear, not what God wants you to hear. And there are serious ramifications and consequences when it comes to false doctrine false theology, and Bible twisting. And so what we try to do here, this is a service, if you would. I'm, like I say at the beginning of every program, I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and I'm here to serve you with biblical discernment, sound biblical apologetics. We try to have a little bit of fun along the way, and, uh, and you get what I'm saying. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Like I said, I'm not going to talk about the Dodgers. <clears throat> it's way too early to... Get excited about that because, like I said, baseball is one of those things that could go either way. Yes, currently the Dodgers are up, but tomorrow could be tied, and then you know, a couple of days from now the Dodgers can be out of it. So you know, you know, you just <clears throat> I try not to let my happiness hinge on how well the Dodgers are doing. Although I gotta admit, I'm a, I'm a bit happy, but somewhat tired. Uh, you know, if you're gonna watch a baseball game, watching it into the middle of the night because it's on the West Coast, it's not. The best thing ever. So, okay. So here's what we're going to talk about on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We are going to start off with a William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and co-prophet of the End Times update. Now, you know, like I said, uh, from time to time, William Tapley serves kind of a, a purpose here at Fighting for the Faith. He does provide a little bit of comedic relief because so much of what we handle here is way over the top bad. But <clears throat> William Tapley is the quintessential idea of a person who is spending an inordinate amount of time on the wrong thing, okay? The, Jesus has commissioned the church, Christians, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching all that he's commanded. And William Tapley is stuck in a cul-de-sac, if you would. And um, the thing he's stuck on is eschatology. And the thing that he's really bad at is eschatology. But it's the thing that he thinks that he's really good at. And so William Tapley spends an inordinate amount of time in front of a blue screen. He's learned, you know, uh, post-production techniques, if you would, um, and um, trying to find the prophetic eschatological significance of just about anything you could possibly imagine that most people don't pay any attention to. Today's example will be yet another example of that. Remember, uh, the, the, the story you know, that I, the, the metaphor I gave last week is that oftentimes people who spend too much time on eschatology, it is jokingly quipped that they have their Bible in one hand and an open newspaper in the other. And last week we discovered that when William Tapley has a Bible open in one hand and the newspaper open in the other, he has it open up to the sports section. <laughs> well, <laughs> today is kind of along those lines, but <laughs> this is one of the goofier things I've seen from William Tapley. I'm looking at the video going, how am I going to get through this without literally falling over and hurting myself from laughing so hard? So we've got a William Tapley update. He's going to tell us about the prophetic biblical significance of the newly released cartoon characters or mascots for the Winter Olympics coming up in Russia, you know, in, in early part of next year. And he sees prophetic significance in this. Yeah, I, I I might have to play the warning just to tell you um you know <clears throat> what to expect here. From there we'll segue into a Patricia King gang update. We're going to be listening to uh Robin a uh, doctor, sorry, Dr. Robin Harfouche 
uh, um, of Christian Harfouche Ministries talking about chasing devils. And it's one of the weirder things I've heard in a while. Let's see, see what you think of it. We'll take a break after that. And when we come back, we have uh, you know kind of a, an emergent twin spin, if you would. We'll, we have an emergent update with uh, Brian McLaren. And uh, I'm going to be playing for you audio from a video that I, you know, I went through the archives to see if I actually covered this last year, and I, apparently I didn't. But uh, Brian McLaren in this video is talking about what he believes may be a move of the Holy Spirit among the nons, the nons, you know, the non-spiritual folks. And so well, it's fascinating to listen to him talk this way because um, nothing that Brian McLaren says actually jives with what Scripture really says. Um, instead, what we have Brian McLaren doing is engaging in postmodern obfuscation and uh, language deconstruction to cast doubt uh, on what the Bible actually says. And throw out these kind of uh, serpentine-type um, questions, did God really say? So we'll take a look at that, and then we'll do a Biologos update. It's been a while since we've done a Biologos update, and I don't know why I've stopped doing them. I'm just looking through my archives here going, we need to uh, pull up a Biologos update. And if you're not familiar with Biologos, this is a group that's trying to find a way to syncretize um, evolutionary theory and uh, Christian and Christian dogma. Well, the problem is, is that you know you got passages where, like the Apostle Paul talks about how in Adam we all fell. So, what is what do the folks at Biologus do to get rid of that pesky passage of Scripture that says that we all came from Adam and Eve and that we all sinned in Adam and Eve? Well, the answer is you create fuzziness where there's hard lines, where there's clarity in Scripture, you blur it. That's what you do. And uh, so we'll be, we got this Biologos uh, video that we're playing audio from where uh, a plethora of different so-called biblical scholars, some of them actually you know, might be biblical scholars, but the way Biologos is using their work is to cast doubt on, on the Apostle Paul's understanding of Adam so that they can find a way to move that passage aside because that's one of the big stumbling blocks uh, for people who are trying to syncretize Christian dogma and Christian theology uh, with evolutionary theory. You know, you got that the Apostle Paul believing in the uh, historic Adam. Well, you, well, that messes everything up, and you can't have Christianity um, syncretized with evolutionary theory if you believe in a historical Adam. So we'll play the audio of the video that they've posted uh, where they're kind of trying to blur those lines. And then kind of keeping with the emergent theme, we will go into a sermon review in hour number two from, in fact, this is uh, from University Christian Church in uh, Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, we'll be listening to a sermon pre preached by an emergent pastrix by the name of Suzanne Castle entitled Church in the Wild. Church in the Wild. And this is, you know, kind of an interesting, weird sermon, but it'll kind of key you in if you've never heard a full-blown uh, postmodern emergent theology being preached, well, you get an idea of what that sounds like, and uh, hopefully we'll try to provide a biblical critique along the way. So we've got a lot of ground to cover today, and due to the fact that the, what we're going to be hearing from William Tapley is so <laughs> absurd, <laughs> I have to play the warning today before we get into it. So let's dive into it. Here we go. Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. 
drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. All right, here we go. You've been warned. That's great. It starts with an earthquake. Birds and snakes and airplanes. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I have a hurricane. Listen to yourself. Turn world so the song needs. Dummy, serve your own needs. Feed it up and knock speed. Sing along if you know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. Boom, boom, boom. All right, yeah, there we go. That's our William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, and co-prophet of the End Times update music. I hope you are in a safe position, that you've assumed the crash position, because you're about to hear the prophetic significance hidden in the Russian Olympic, Winter Olympic mascots via William Tapley. I don't know what else to say except for, hang on, here we go, this will be absurd. Here we go. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the Co-Prophet of the End Times. Yesterday, one of my subscribers sent me a note saying that I should do a video on the mascots for the 2014 Winter Olympics in Russia. Now, just so you know, the mascots are on the video. If you want to see this, you go to youtube.com forward slash Third Eagle Books and you know, find the video uh, Bible Prophecy Hidden in Russian Olympic Logos and you will see these cute, computer-generated, cartoonish-like characters. One looks like a leopard. The other is a bunny. And the other is a polar bear. And they all look really cute and lovable and fuzzy and just, like, darling. Like, you want to just grab them up and give them a big, wet hug. But, <clears throat> well, <laughs> William Tapley sees in them something not cuteness. He sees something rather nefarious and foreboding and evil about these cute, lovable, fuzzy, <clears throat> cartoonish Olympic mascot characters. And he pointed out to me that the three mascots are very similar to the three beasts that come up out of the sea in Daniel chapter number 7. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> okay. So, so in Daniel chapter 7, we have a leopard, a cute bunny, and a polar bear? <laughs> I don't think so. And we know that Daniel is describing three ancient kingdoms and kings in that passage. But he is also describing three present-day kings and kingdoms. And we know who they are. We know the lion represents 
England, the bear represents Russia, and the leopard represents our own Barack Obama and the United States. Well, my question is, who does the fuzzy little cute bunny rabbit represent in Bible prophecy? I haven't heard of that character yet. So let's take a closer look at these three mascots, which were voted on by the people of Russia, by the way, and see how close they are to the beasts from Daniel chapter number 7. Now, first of all, notice that this leopard is in two colors. This is the only mascot in two colors. The others are solid colors. The two colors... Now, you're wondering, how can you tell it's a leopard? Well, because, you know, leopard has spots. ...colors indicate a leopard because they reflect Barack Obama, who has a biracial background. And that's why Daniel uses the leopard to symbolize Obama. What's really interesting is that they depict this leopard mascot with four toes on one of his paws, but without any toes on the other paws. And that four, of course, is important. Because there are also... Yeah, I totally I forgot to count the toes. If only I had counted the toes on that little leopard cute character, I would have realized the prophetic significance. Four little boxes on this mountain climbing belt. Maybe you can see that, maybe you can't. But that reflects the four heads and the four wings on the leopard in Daniel also. Now, this middle figure is not quite accurate. Uh, first of all... Because <laughs> the middle figure is the cute little bunny rabbit, and it's a snow bunny. It's white. It's just it's the cutest little thing ever, you know? I just can't imagine that Daniel had, coming out of the sea, this terrifying... But maybe it's the bunny from uh, Monty Python, the Holy Grail, you know, the one with the sharp, pointy teeth, you know. These three figures are supposed to indicate the first, second, and third places on the podium at the Olympics. So they are showing this center figure, who would normally be the first place winner, much smaller than normal. If this were showed correctly, it would be very high. And if it were... To be true to Daniel, this figure should be a lioness. But at least, but it's not a lioness. It's a cute little snow bunny. I, how can you say that there's prophetic biblical significance here when it's not a lion? It's, it's a snow bunny. Last time I checked, snow bunnies are in the food chain that lionesses eat. I, I don't... Yeah, well, you remember the movie? What was that? Ghostbusters. Remember Ghostbusters? And you know, he, at the end, that guy got to choose the form of the, of what Zool came onto Earth, and it, it was the Stave Puff Marshmallow Man. <laughs> I feel like this is one of those moments, you know, that you know, apparently something has happened terribly wrong in you know in the manifestation of biblical prophecy and and something happened you know what was supposed to come out of the sea as a as this roaring lion lioness thingy came out as the stay puff marshmallow bunny yes, they have the gender right this little bunny rabbit is feminine and of course on the right we have the bear the third beast that comes up out of the sea actually the second beast and they show the bear as larger than the other two animals and I believe that's because the bear symbolizes Russia. What's really interesting... Maybe it could be because polar bears are a lot larger than bunny rabbits and a lot larger than leopards. Thing ...is that the bear does not have four toes. The bear has five toes on this paw, five toes on this paw, and three on one of the feet and 
chew on the other feet. I think that they are trying to expropriate the number 555 for the bear, and that is not accurate as far as prophecy goes. Uh-huh. How do you find the time for this, William? So, yes, they are correct in showing the bear higher than the leopard. That indicates that Russia will defeat the United States and Barack Obama. However, the 555, as far as the toes go, will defeat the final one world communist tyranny. <laughs> I, I'll never be able to read Daniel 7 the same again. Every time I read about the Linus, I'm going to picture this cute little snow bunny. And the 555 symbolizes Mary's rosary. And that is also indicated by the 15, 15, and 15. 15 is most definitely a rosary number in Bible prophecy. Now, you might say this is all a coincidence, but let's take a look at the... <laughs> no, I don't think it's a coincidence at all. I think you're a loony. ...official logo for the Russian Winter Olympics. So here on the right, we see five Olympic rings. I believe those rings symbolize the five continents. We see the five Olympic rings over here also. And we see five leaves arranged in a semicircle. It's quite interesting design. But what that gives us is five, five, five. Yeah, Whew, I missed that one. Now, I'm not sure how much the designers of these mascots or logos knew what they were doing. But on the other hand, the numerology of the Bible is embedded in human consciousness. Uh-huh. So, and that proves it. The numerology of the Bible is somehow embedded in human consciousness. And how do we know this? Because there's, um, <clears throat> because of the snow bunny that's going to come out of the sea <laughs> in Daniel chapter 7. You just cannot make this stuff up. <laughs> Please, somebody, take the camera away from Grandpa. Please take the camera away from Grandpa. Okay, moving along. Okay, so um, are you into chasing devils? I mean, you know, are you... Do you have power and authority over such things? Well, let's listen to Dr. Robin Harfouche of Christian Harfouche Ministries. Somehow talking... I don't know, something to do with chasing devils. I, that didn't make any sense to me. But see what you can make of this. Here we go. Hallelujah. Do you know where fear is? Fear is in the world. I didn't hear a very big amen on that. Fear is in the world. My Bible said that God. Yeah, that's G-A-W-D. That's how that's spelled. My, my Bible said that God. Yeah, G-A-W-D. See, I don't have an amen corner going here yet because I said that real good. My Bible said that God. <laughs> See, there's a difference when you say God or when you say God. This is biblical preaching? D doesn't she know that the Bible says that she can't be doing this? See, God, you can feel it in your belly. You can feel it in your toes. God. God. See, you got to say it that way because otherwise nothing happens to you. It's like God. You got to say God. 
when the devil is trying. Yeah, something's happened to me, all right. I feel like my lunch is going to come back up. To impend on your space, you need to say, get out of my space, because God. God has not given me the spirit of fear, but of, but of power. Now, by the way, this is not actually biblical preaching. What you're hearing here is slogan preaching. Okay, this is you know a bunch of Christianized slogans ripped from their context and then punched out in a way that is designed to emotionally manipulate. That's the kind of what we're. You know, so this is you know basically sloganizing, if you would. Politicians do this kind of stuff, but not biblical exegetes. So that doesn't mean we avoid the world. That means we walk down the street and fear freaks out everywhere we go. Just yeah, you know, fear isn't a person or a, a you know a personality. Um, so I I don't think I could freak fear out. I mean that's kind of silly. I mean, be like freaking the color purple out. You you know what I'm saying? Like they said to Jesus Christ, uh, 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 have you come to torment us before our time? And he said, shut up. He didn't go over to them and preach a nice little sermon to that demon-possessed person. He just looked at him and said, shut up. See, some people in the church today, they just think that would be a little radical. Well, that's because you ain't never dealt with a demon. Oh, I'm sure you have. You might even be possessed by one. See, you have to have enough power to make the devil manifest. But that doesn't mean when he manifests, you let him manifest. But all y'all don't know what I'm talking about, do you? This is weird. This is one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. God never called us to psychoanalyze the devil or to psychoanalyze a Christian. God told us to teach him, exhort him through the word. Hallelujah. Which you were supposed to teach and exhort demons? <laughs> really? Didn't know that. Is a sword, not a powder puff. Let me break out my soft powder puff and, and, and pet all your demons and just write me a check and walk out of here. That was an hour. Uh, <laughs> what? Yeah, I think this may be an example of why it is the Bible forbids women from doing what she's doing. I call that psychiatry. You believe in Darwinism. You believe in Freud. I believe in Christ. I've never seen a psychologist chase cancer out of a room. Yeah, I've never seen a doctor do it either. Um, yeah, again, you, you know, you're familiar with like personification. Cancer isn't a person. It's not something. It's not like something that walks into a room or can be chased out of a room. It's a disease. You, you know, it's a, it's one, it's something that goes haywire within your body. You know, you don't chase it out of a room. I don't think you're ready for me today. I don't think you prepared a biblical. Um, sermon although you're not supposed to be doing that anyway you know
Paul said, I don't come to you. I'm talking about St. Paul. Yeah, I'm familiar with who you're talking about. I'm glad you clarified, though, for those in the audience that may not know that. Somebody say, St. Paul. I don't come to you with the enticing words of man's wisdom. Yeah, in fact, I'm going to read this, this passage in just a second, but I want to let her spin this out just a little farther. Hang on. But in the demonstration of the Holy Ghost and power. See, there's a problem when there's no demonstration after the enticing words have been spoken. Now, God... Uh, no, he didn't actually preach any enticing words. And you're kind of missing the whole point of that passage, but let's, let's let you spin it out just a little farther. The Holy Ghost won't manifest himself through enticing words of man's wisdom. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you right now. So, yeah, that passage isn't about uh, the Holy Ghost manifesting itself. Yeah, if you don't believe me, let's take a look in our Bibles. <clears throat> let's see here. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, <clears throat> verse 18. Okay, we'll, we'll go from there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. We'll start there. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And notice, how did he do that? Through the message of the cross. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So he's not talking about the manifestation of the Spirit. He's talking about the preaching of the cross. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were called, uh, were, uh, were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, the whole point of this passage is the message of the cross, not the, quote, manifestation of the Spirit and chasing devils and things like that. <clears throat> Robin Harfouche is um, off-topic, and if she would read what God the Holy Spirit had the Apostle Paul write a little bit more carefully, she would understand that what she's doing is sinful and contrary to what God has commanded, because women are not to be preachers in Christ's church. 
something to think about. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. We've got a BioLogos update and a Brian McLaren Emergent Church update. Don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Fools Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam-dunks from the foul line! That's a birdie! The crowd is going wild! When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teeing Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. 
Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, Let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted two tin cans and a string. It's one of those communicated devicey thingies. Now you can talk to your friends of a long... Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor, Pastrix, is known for nonsense. Just saying. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. Think of it as a partnership, if you would. Um, we do all the work. You listen and enjoy. And if you feel like you're growing and you're learning stuff and your understanding of Scripture is improving and you're not being deceived and schnookered and bamboozled, then you say, you know, I want to help Fighting for the Faith keep doing what they're doing. Then you visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month. That's it, to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. If you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. Moving along. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern philharmonic orchestra conducted by Doug Paget. That's right. This is their homage to <clears throat> also Sprock Zarathustra by Strauss. And as you can tell, they've freed themselves from the limiting definitions of modernist notes and are just being led by the spirit here. 
get ready to have your socks blown off. This thing is going to get off the chain really quick here. Hang on, here we go. Doesn't that just bring a tear to your eye? This is so cutting edge. So postmodern. So spirit led. Yeah, you, you hear that complaint a lot from the so called nons that. Uh, <clears throat> Brian McLaren's going to be talking about momentarily here. And, you know, they'll say things like, you know, we are really not into organized religion. Uh, and, um, well, when I hear somebody say that, I, f- you know, feel like the, what they're really saying is they're not, they're, they're not into organized religion. They're into disorganized religion. Just like I'm not into organized music. No, I'm into disorganized music because it's <clears throat> so much better. All right. So here's Brian McLaren talking about a move of the Holy Spirit among the nons. And we'll pay close attention to his postmodern language deconstruction by which he comes up with this nonsensical thing that he says here. And I'll point it out along the way so you can note how the technique works, because this is the same technique employed by Satan as the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Here's uh, Brian McLaren talking about the move of the Holy Spirit among the nons. Here we go. Hi, my name is Brian McLaren. I just uh, completed a 17-city book tour relating to my new book, which is called Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road? Uh, the subtitle is Christian Identity in a Multi-Faith World. Now, the funny thing is, is that sounds like the opening to a really bad joke, which I think is what his book really is. While I was on the tour, the latest research about the nuns, not the N-U-N-S, but the N-O-N-E-S, Research that says uh, about 20% of Americans now identify themselves as unaffiliated religiously, and that percentage is uh, significantly higher when when you go uh, to the younger part of our demographic. So officially unaffiliated. Now, so the question is, is there a move of the Holy Spirit among the nuns? That doesn't make any sense. I'm convinced that the topic of my new book and the rise of the nuns are, are related. I had so many people during the tour tell me that the reason they're, they've dropped out of the church or that maybe they're just hanging on by a fingernail is that they don't want to be part of a religious community that requires them to hold hostility toward, uh, toward the other. Now, hang on a second here. Um, Christianity does not require, biblical Christianity does not require you to hold hostility towards the other. No, we're told to love God and love our neighbors. The question is, when we have a neighbor or a friend or a family member who is basically worshiping a false God, a God that cannot save them, and they are committing the sin of idolatry, um, are we as Christians to be hostile towards them? No. What we're supposed to do is tell them to repent and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, including the sin of idolatry and their worship of a false god. That's not hostility. That's love. 
whether that's the sexually other, the politically other, uh, the uh, religiously other. There's something inside of them that says being part of a religious community that keeps their hostility levels high is not part of the solution, it's actually part of the problem. It, it makes me wonder, what if the Holy Spirit is really active in the world the way Jesus said the Spirit would be? Um, <clears throat> did you catch that? So something inside of them, that must be the Holy Spirit, something inside of them is telling them that this can't be right. So God the Holy Spirit is telling them not to be part of a religious community that says that homosexuality is a sin, that worshiping a false god is a sin. That's not the Holy Spirit. And so notice the language deconstruction. Notice the deconstruction technique. What if, what if God... The Holy Spirit is really working in them. Let me back this up just a smidge. Listen again. Part of the problem. It, it makes me wonder, what if the Holy Spirit is really active in the world the way Jesus said the Spirit would be? And how did Jesus say the Spirit would be active in the world? Jesus said the Spirit would be active in the world, convicting the world of sin. Yeah. Justice. Um, sin and justice? And coming judgment. Uh -huh. <clears throat> Sin and unbelief. God, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin and unbelief. I know how most people interpret that, uh, but let's step back from the traditional interpretation and imagine if the Holy Spirit really were... Step back from the traditional interpretation. Don't pay attention to what the words really mean in context and how the church has always understood those words to me. No, 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 no. Let's, let's find some new postmodern whimsical way of, of reinterpreting those words so that the, to, when it's talking about the Spirit convecting the sin, the world of sin and unbelief, that what that really means is that convicting the world of, I don't know, what, what would that mean then, Brian? In the world, helping people have a sense of what's right and what's wrong. Uh, they really having a sense of what's just and what's un unjust. And having a sense that if we keep living the way we've been living, it's going to result in terrible undesirable consequences. What if the Spirit of God is... What if? What if the Spirit of God... What if? What if the Spirit of God is telling us all to buy popsicles? What if? It's otter pops. It's at work in people's hearts telling them that the sin of religious supremacy, just like racial supremacy. What if the Spirit is convicting the world of the sin of religious supremacy? You know, teaching that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except for through him. That's the sin of religious supremacy. What if the Spirit is trying to knock that out of us? Well, that wouldn't make any sense because God the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired those words to be written. Jesus himself makes it clear that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except for through him. God reveals, you shall have no other God before me. Religious supremacy. Notice he changes the language. It's no longer the question of which religion is true, which God exists, but no, the sin of religious supremacy. You know, like those evil KKK people, they're into white supremacy, and that's evil. So if you believe that Christianity is the only way and that 
well, God is only going to save those who penitently trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You are guilty of the sin of religious supremacy. You might as well put on a white hoodie, a white cape, uh, and all that kind of stuff, and burn crosses in in Muslims' yards and things like that, because you are a religious supremacist. Because what if that's what God the Holy Spirit is up to? That's not what God the Holy Spirit is up to. And this what-if question, it's the same question that the uh, serpent asked in the garden. Did God really say? That was the question, right? So the answer is, yeah, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. This is what Scripture says. Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except for through him. And Scripture's patently clear that there is salvation in no other name than in Jesus Christ. That's not, quote, religious supremacy. That's telling the truth because there are no other gods. Allah will not save anybody. Uh, the Buddha, and you know, which was actually more of a philosophy, that Buddhist philosophy won't save anybody. Belief in Shiva or Vishnu cannot save you. Those gods do not hear. Belief in Baal or Zeus or Asherah or Molech cannot save you. There are no other gods. Is leading us toward real destruction. What if the Spirit of God is moving in people's hearts saying, don't be part of something that makes you distrustful, prejudiced against and uh, inhospitable toward uh, other human beings. Um, Actually, we must be hospitable towards other human beings, even those caught up in false religions. And we must speak the truth in love and tell them to repent and tell them about God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified under Pontius Pilate, died, resurrected, and was, you know, died, buried, and was resurrected on the third day for our sins and for our justification. We must tell our neighbors who are caught up in false religions, worshiping false gods about the one true God that exists and call them to repent and to be forgiven of their idolatry. That's not hatred. That's not religious supremacy. That is the epitome of love. Because on the last day, they're going to stand before the God that they don't believe in, and he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. We don't want that to happen, so we tell them to repent and to trust Christ so that they may be forgiven and saved and spend eternity with him because the gods that they believe in cannot save. This, and so he keeps saying, what if the Holy Spirit, what if the Holy Spirit is, don't be a part of this? This is blasphemy. God the Holy Spirit would never contradict what he has had written in his word. It makes me wonder, what could the Holy Spirit be up to? And will the church be listening? Ah, so it makes him wonder, what will the Holy Spirit be up to, and will the church be listening? Well, I can tell you this, I do listen to the Holy Spirit. I listen to his word, because all scripture is theonoustos, it's God-breathed, inspired by God the Holy Spirit. So I do listen to the Spirit, and I know exactly what he said, and I believe what he said, and there's no reason to believe that God the Holy Spirit is now going to come along and say, yeah, listen, I didn't mean that. What I really meant to say was the opposite of what was written there. Yeah, it's not going to happen. See, Brian McLaren is looking for some voice of the Spirit that's going to basically tell everybody to sing Kumbaya and hug each other so we can all be one big religious family, regardless of the God that we worship or believe in. But that's not what God's Word says. God's Word says the exact opposite. The question for you is, who are you going to believe? The God who wrote and inspired the written Word of God, the Bible? or the so-called spirit that Brian McLaren thinks is going to lead us all away from what the Bible really says.
That's really the question for you. Moving along. Yeah, that's right. It's time for a Biologos update. She loves the monkey's uncle. Rub all his monkey shines. Every day is Valentine's. I love the monkey's uncle and the monkey's uncle. They for me. They for me. Uh-huh. She loves the monkey's uncle. Yeah, yeah. She loves the monkey's uncle. Yeah, that's uh, Annette Funicello and the Beach Boys. And the monkey's uncle. They for me. All right, uh, kill the music here. It's kind of sad, you know, because Annette Funicello died a while ago. <clears throat> yeah, it makes me feel old. All right, so here's the question. Here's the question. How on earth are you supposed to syncretize Christianity and evolutionary theory when you got all these really, really thorny passages in the Bible that talk about the historical Adam, you know? And so, you know, you got scripture that says that all scripture is God-breathed. It's theonoustos. It's inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. And this is not the work of man. It, ultimately, the common author in every biblical text is God, the Holy Spirit. And then you have the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, is an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who then turns around and in Romans chapter 5 tells us that Adam is a historical person, which makes it impossible for you to do that thing to the book of Genesis that the liberals like to do and talk about it being a Theo poem, you know? Oh, yeah, that Theo poem in Genesis chapter 3, you know, that Adam wasn't really a human being. Well, then why did Jesus believe in Adam? Ah, uh, because he didn't know any better. How come uh, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that uh, you can't even explain sin and how it came into the world unless you understand the biblical story and how it relates to the historic Adam? Case in point, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, I read, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace that the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Now, see, here's the deal. Romans chapter 5 makes not a lick of sense if Adam wasn't a historical person. Because Jesus then is coming along to solve the problem of sin, which, according to Romans chapter 5, sin came into the world when Adam sinned and rebelled against God and disobeyed him. This is what Scripture teaches. Adam, you know, was the first human being, and everybody descended from Adam and Eve is born dead in trespasses and sins, Scripture says. So that's the explanation the Bible gives for why there's evil in the world, why we die, why there's earthquakes, why there's hurricanes, why there's tsunamis, why... Why there's car crashes and cancer and all this, right? This is what this, this text says. It all goes back to a historical person named Adam and Eve, who, well, a person's Adam and Eve, and they were created by God on the sixth day. 
Well, see, here's the problem. No good evolutionary theorist is going to buy that. No, no, no. We've got to come up with some alternate story. Now, of course, what happens is is that Christians look out there and they, they aren't invited to the scientists' uh, Christmas parties when they start talking about Adam and Eve and us being created by God and stuff. And so it's kind of embarrassing if you're trying to climb the social ladder and you keep saying you believe in things like, you know, like a literal Adam and stuff like that. And so, you know, it, it, they would rather not have to face that type of derision, and so they've come up with this new clever idea. Let's find a way to syncretize evolutionary theory with Christian dogma so that we can be Christian evolutionists. And then you sit there and go, yeah, but that doesn't work, because here you got Jesus saying he believes in Adam and Eve, and then you got Paul saying the same thing, and that sin came into the world you know, through the one man Adam, right there in Romans chapter 5. Ah, well, it's real simple, okay? If you want to syncretize evolutionary theory and Christianity, what you do is you take Romans chapter 5, which is very, 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 very clear. The passage couldn't be clearer. And you know what you do? You add a Gaussian blur to it. And all of a sudden, you just start to say, well, maybe it's not as clear as you think it is. Let's see if we can fuzz this up a bit and see. See, by making it fuzzy, maybe... He's not really talking about a literal Adam. He's maybe he's talking about, you know, Adam as some kind of, um, you know, um, a literary type or mythical type or something like that. So what that's what they're doing. And you're going to hear the audio from their video called Paul's Adam. Notice it says Paul's Adam, which is just tells you everything. You find this on the BioLogos website, by the way, BioLogos.org. Click on the resources, go to their videos, and you can find the video Paul's Adam. Now, notice it's not Jesus's Adam or God's Adam. No, no, it's Paul. So let's blame this on Paul and let's find a way to fuzz this up, you know, because, I mean, obviously God is no, you know, he's not a rube. Like Paul was. And so you got, let's see what you can do here. So what we're going to hear is basically a postmodern way of fuzzing up the very clear passage there in Romans chapter 5 in order to get rid of the historical Adam so that you can then smuggle into Christianity <clears throat> evolutionary theory. And it, you'll have a star-studded uh, cast in this audio, including N.T. Wright and Alistair McGrath and others. Uh, and all of them have British accents, which then lends to the credibility. Of course, no one with a British accent could possibly be telling us anything wrong. <clears throat> I digress. Here we go. The letter to the Romans has many, many things going on in it. It's an amazing masterpiece. And at the heart of the first half in chapter 5, Paul draws together what he's been saying with a kind of a big picture summary. He's been talking about Abraham and Abraham's family and the way in which the death and resurrection of Jesus constitutes Abraham's family as a worldwide forgiven family. And that enables him to stand back from that and say, now, look, as in Adam, so in the Messiah. Paul contrasts Christ and Adam. Scholars call this the Adam-Christ typology. Paul's point seems to be that both figures, Adam and Christ, are significant for the destiny of all creation. And to understand what Paul meant when he was speaking of Adam in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, we have to read the Adam tradition in light of the story of Israel. The significance Adam... Notice, this is uh, uh, Dr. Tilling, by the way. Notice how he's doing this. Oh, we've got to learn how to read the Adam tradition. 
the Adam tradition, not the Adam history, the Adam tradition. See, this is Paul's Adam, and, and Paul is, he's, uh, you know, you got to understand in light of the Adam tradition. See, Jesus, well, he was real, but Paul, yeah, the, the, and I'm, that Adam guy that Paul was talking about, yeah, you, you got to understand it in light of the Adam tradition. See, now it's starting to get really fuzzy, right? ...in the story of Israel, the way Adam was interpreted by contemporary Jews in the time of Paul. And so Paul is taking us right back to the big picture of Genesis and saying that that whole problem which started way back has now been addressed and more than addressed. God has actually got the project of Genesis 1 and 2 back on track at last after it had been derailed. Paul is seeing Adam and Christ as representative figures. Adam is the... Now, this is true. This is, by the way, Alistair McGrath. Um, yeah, this is true. He's seeing them as representative figures. Adam definitely represents the entirety of the human race. You can talk about his, quote, federal headship if you want to. Um, but that doesn't take away from the fact that Adam was a real person. In fact, Romans 5 doesn't make sense if he's just some mythological explanation that somehow crept into the human psyche and then got written down in a legendary book like the Bible. You know what I'm saying? Representative, the figurehead, whoever you like to say, for humanity in general. What went wrong in Adam was rectified in Christ. And Yes, this is true. Basically what I see here is Paul saying that salvation is in effect a putting right what has gone wrong with humanity. That is the inner logic of Romans chapter 3. Israel was unfaithful. Is God then going to say, okay, let's forget the idea of an Israel and do something different? No. God is committed to saving the world through Israel. What he needs is a faithful Israelite. So Romans 3.22 is precisely what you've got. God's covenant faithfulness is revealed through the faithfulness of the Messiah for the benefit of all those who believe. So Paul says, this is how the Adam problem gets dealt with. Now the key question, and it won't go away, is whether Paul is seeing Adam as a representative figure. In some way, here is a figurehead of humanity as a whole. Or whether Paul is seeing him as a specific historical figure. The answer is both. It's, this is not an either or. You don't want to bifurcate here. Who in some way gave rise to the human race as we now know it. What was Paul's view exactly about how the world was created? What was his scientific point of view? Um, Paul's view about how the world was created is based upon the only eyewitness testimony we have regarding the creation of the world. You said an eyewitness testimony? Yep. Were you there? I wasn't there. I know you weren't either. So we, in order to know how the world came into existence, we need eyewitness testimony as to how that took place. Where does that eyewitness testimony exist? Answer, in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. So Paul's view of how the world came into existence is based upon the only eyewitness testimony that we have, and we have that from the God who actually created the world, and it's right there in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. So notice here, now it's, it's now Paul's Adam, not God's Adam. Notice now the question, was he a real, literal figurehead? Was he really a real human or just some kind of, some, or was he representative of the human race? The answer is he was both representative of the human race and he was a literal person. And now we have this new guy talking about, well, what was his scientific point of view? Um, yeah, uh, Paul... Paul's point of view regarding the creation is the same as Christ's point of view regarding the creation. Yes, Jesus had the same point of view as Paul did. Jesus affirms 
that Adam and Eve were created in the beginning. This is the view of Jesus, and he's God in human flesh. You get what I'm saying? We continue. Now, Paul was somebody who lived in the first century, and Paul did not understand modern science. When he thought about creation, uh, he wasn't... He didn't need to, because modern science doesn't actually contradict um, the claims of Scripture. That's right. When science tries to come up with an explanation as to how the world came into existence, it's it ceased being scientific. Science is all about observation, right? Um, when science starts making claims about how the world came into existence, it's engaging in speculation and theology, and it's steering out of science into something different. Thinking in terms of modern science, it wasn't the question he was asking. I suspect that Paul would have shared many of the views of his day. He may well have believed in a flat earth. But his... Th um, yeah, the flat earth... Yeah, it doesn't matter if he believed in a flat earth or not. Um, it doesn't say, and that's quite an aspersion to throw against the Apostle Paul, because Paul, being a good Jew and, and a student of the Bible... Uh, the Old Testament in particular, would understand about the circle of the earth mentioned in Scripture. So, um, yeah. Theology does not depend on his science. His theology of Adam has mainly, I think, to do with his understanding of humanity and how it was created, rather than in any way being a scientific statement. Again, when science starts making um, statements that it cannot observe or reproduce in the lab, it ceases being scientific and walks into the realm of philosophy and theology. I do think we mustn't underestimate the sophistication of people like Paul. He was highly trained. He will have known and did know aspects of Greek philosophy where they discussed questions of creation and so on. He will have understood the Old Testament um, with a very sharp eye. And I think he will have understood that the stories of creation are, if you like, not scientific descriptions, but are theological affirmations about God's truth and about... No, they're eyewitness testimonies to what happened. That's what the scriptures tell us. Um, God is the only one who was there when the world was created, so we need an eyewitness testimony, and that's what Genesis provides us with. How God created the world. If we try and understand Paul's Adam talk in terms of, of later scientific concerns relating to creation and evolution, then we're actually putting the Adam talk into a different story, and we will ultimately... and end up misunderstanding Paul. So it's oh, so if you, if you are understanding that Paul is here describing some scientific thing, and by scientific, here's what they mean. Are you ready? That Paul was actually literally saying that, you know, God created Adam and Eve, and everybody is genetically related to them and dis direct descendants of them. Scientific, right? Um, well, then you're going to misunderstand Paul. That's what he's saying. No, the, the, Paul actually understood this correctly because Adam was a literal historical person. In Adam, we all did fall, and we are all actually descendants of Adam and Eve. Yeah, so I understand Paul correctly because Paul understands the text in Genesis correctly. And that's exactly what Jesus affirmed, by the way. It's actually quite vital if we want to understand what Paul is saying to put it firmly in the Jewish story and the Jewish narrative. I think we can say that fundamentally whatever Christ did is about the rectification of the natural state of humanity. And therefore it seems to me 
just natural that Paul would refer to Jesus as a new Adam. Because here at last is a human being doing what Adam was called to do but didn't. It's Jesus who is the truly human one and anyone who is in yeah, but see, if Adam isn't a real human being, wasn't an actual historical person, then Jesus isn't – well, if, he's, if he becomes the true Adam, then Jesus just becomes an archetype and a myth. Jesus, the Messiah, is truly human. So there you go. So how do you take a clear passage and get rid of it so that you can smuggle in evolutionary theory? Well, you engage in language obfuscation and all kinds of weird category mistakes. And you take the clear and you just blur it beyond all recognition. And at the end of that, you go, oh, so it's, um, what are you saying? Oh, oh, you mean I can, so I can be a Christian and not believe that God created the world and that Adam wasn't really a, a real person. Right. Uh-huh. That's how the game is played. You take the clear and you blur it. It's real simple. Jesus believed in Adam and Eve because he's the one who created them. And he actually said that, it, you know, that he created them. You got it? And Jesus rose from the grave. And so he's got better credentials than all of those guys with the British accents in that video. All of them. And Jesus' view of science is not separated from his theology because there's nothing that exists scientifically that didn't first have its origin in the mind of God itself. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. An emergent pastrix sermon review. Uh-huh, yeah, stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, try to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, Let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted 
new teeth. Oh, sorry, dear. I seem to have accidentally wrapped my spare dentures. <laughs> Here's your real present. Oh, look. It's a glow stick. We all know how much you like Star Wars, so we got you one of those lightsaber thingies. Oh. Thanks. Ow. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about Think Geek. At Think Geek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Okay, whoa. I have been gone all summer. Okay, have you guys forgotten that you're supposed to talk and respond? Jeez. Okay, just again, making sure you guys are awake. It's not that hot today. I'm just making sure we're okay. Are we? Are we alive out there? Okay. Okay. Good. All right. So it was very, very weird and odd to me. I was standing in the middle of what we had had affectionately kind of named the mud flats of this area in North Carolina, this muddy grass area. There were people, they were dancing and they were, they were singing hymns, but there weren't any accompaniment besides our voices and this kind of odd person beating on a tree trunk. And rain was falling on our faces and I had been ill-prepared even though I had rain boots you know, I have a thing about footwear and um, shorts. I don't like shorts. And so there we are kind of sloshing through the mud, rain falling on our faces. It was beer and hymns at the Wild Goose Festival in North Carolina. Now, I got to tell you. Yeah, that's right. She's describing her experience at this year's Wild Goose Festival. Yeah, I'm really into beer and hymns now. I just, I just got to say, I'm really jealous because the First Christian Church of Portland does beer and hymns every month in their space. I know that may be going to the board soon enough. So, um, there I was, I was, I was wandering among the masses and there was this guy dressed up. You're going to see a video in a minute. And he was kind of the, the song leader and he was gesturing and walking among the people. Several of us that are here were there and they can attest to this. And, and we were like splashing to the mud puddles, like little kids seeing great is thy faithfulness. Right? Um, thinking, God, you're not that faithful because it's gross outside. You know, it's either you were bit with chiggers and mosquitoes or it was muddy. There was no in between. And um, I was looking at all these people and I was thinking to myself, these are people that have taken vacation, spent a lot of money because we were near the Appalachian Trail. It is not easy to get to, who are standing in the rain singing and drinking, but singing but also drinking. And, and they were talking about the faithfulness of God. And then in this moment, suddenly, as the rain began to fall a little bit more, everybody started singing down to the river to pray. And it was like this moment of grace fell over the space. And I was thinking about all of these committed people. And there were people there that were Buddhist and that were Muslim, and that were Jewish, and that were Christian. This was not a specifically Christian thing. The Wild Goose Festival was, a, was an experience about art, spirituality, and justice. And it brought together several different tribes of people. But these were all committed people to faith, where, where our actions and our thoughts try to come together to line up. To bring- 
So it wasn't necessarily Christian either dedicated to arts, spirituality, and justice. Okay. Bring a better world into being. And then from the back, I get grabbed and hugged. And I turn around. There's this long line of people in front of this person. And it's Brian McLaren, who you just saw on the screen. And he says, I'm sorry, because everybody wanted time with him, because, you know, he's famous. <clears throat> and he's like, I have to hug my good friend, Suzanne. And I literally just burst into tears. Who am I in the kingdom of God? Brian was there talking and talking some more and talking every day. And they, I was just there. And so myself and some of us here from the search crowd were there to hear him. And on one occasion where he was speaking, he talked about the need for better community formation. And then several hours later, I was talking about art and community formation. And how art can bring different people together when they don't even have the words to speak. And then Brian spoke right after me in a pub. We did a lot of drinking. You're seeing a pattern here. About economic justice. And it was so powerful. So powerful. It was raining. And all I could think about was how many of us were tired. And I don't mean tired of the rain. Tired. Tired of the systems that we find ourselves in and perpetuating every day. How many of us just want to gather people and sing them to the river of life? So Brian and I began to talk and then later on in the middle of like beer and hymns and shortly after he talked about what a privilege it was that morning to get to take a shower now, I'm thinking, yes, because there's a lot of stinky people here. There's a lot of people camped, but I don't camp, so I had a cottage. But a lot of people were camping. <clears throat> and some of us were grateful for the rain for the simple fact that it was helping the land not be so stinky with humanity. But Brian was talking about what a privilege it was because even the king of France and King Henry VIII didn't have the great privilege of taking a shower of washing away all of the dirt and the grime, all of the sin and the bothersomeness, all of the things that they were perpetuating in their own kingdoms, even the kings didn't get a shower. But every day we get up, and I would say most people here sitting among us get a shower if we want to. He reminded us, where we get clean, a simple shower, where the water falls over us and makes us new is a new revelation in our life. And how odd it is that in the middle of all of this, we as a people of God struggle bringing that water of life to the places of great desolation. How odd what we get used to. What seems normal what seems expected? So enter V.V. Brown. <clears throat> V.V. Brown was the singer. Well, Nate was the singer, but the original singer of the tune the band just played. 
if you don't know about Vivi Brown, Vivi Brown um, is a British indie pop singer. So why do I feel like when she's talking about bringing the waters of life to people, she's not talking about baptismal waters? <clears throat> and now we're off talking about some hip hop song or something. Okay. I have not much to say because this isn't even biblical. I don't know what this is. This is just, you know, choose your own religion adventure stuff going on here. Who does some hip hop. She's a model. She's also a record producer. And this song was called Children. And it it kind of has this ice cream truck hook. I don't know if you caught that. You know, this kind of thing that children would chase down the street a little bit. Right. But if you were listening closely to the lyrics, it launches into this kind of youth empowerment and and justice for the world message. So odd to have an ice cream truck leading us into a message that directly contradicts that same sound of ice cream. And if you ask Evie Brown what it's about, she says this, she says, it's about having hope despite the economy failing. And then she says, I like the idea of an ice cream truck. It's fun and it's youthful. And then she says, but if you think about it, it's pretty twisted. Because there's always some that get it and some that don't. This song debuted at the same time that the London riots were going on. And she said as she was recording this song that she'd already seen some of the signs this was happening. And when she heard it for the first time on the radio, she was in a building and she literally was watching the riots happen. And she said it kind of became an anthem for a lot of people during that time. There was so much going on that the youths were taking to the streets. They were talking. And she said that you could feel it in the air, this kind of sudden desperation of humanity this frustration that we all feel that from what we first thought about when we were children and the hope that we had about how the world could be a better place and then how we slam into an institution that oppresses us. And the thing is, is our world is becoming much smaller. Everyone's a publisher. Did you know that? Have you thought of yourself as a publisher? Hello? So here's my question. Um, am, am I oppressed because of an institution or do institutions within our world oppress because men are sinful? You see, one of the things I've noted about uh, liberalism, okay, what you're listening to is, is a full-blown theological and political liberal. Liberalism is the flip opposite, the uh, same coin of conservatism. Now, I'm going to use a category for Christianity that's different than liberalism or conservatism, okay? So when you think of biblical Christianity, it actually exists on a different coin. Um, I am a confessional Lutheran, and I think that's a better way of putting it than saying I'm a conservative Lutheran. Although most people would understand me to be conservative, they're right if you, you know, in, in understanding that, but I don't think it's a helpful category, okay? What I think is more important is confession, confessional subscription. You know, I confess particular things. I believe, teach, and confess certain things as a Christian. 
And liberals are people who use a different side of their brain for the most part than conservatives, more artistic. Um, you know, they're into the arts and they see the world in very different in a different way than most people do. And a lot of the things they see, a lot of the things that they see wrong with the world, they are spot on. And I would even argue that many of the things that they see wrong in the world, they have a far better depth of understanding of uh, of of the problems in the world. They see people oppressing other people via institutions and other things. The problem is, is that their solution to the problem is, is not the solution, especially when it comes to Christianity. Okay. Yes, there are institutions in the world that oppress human beings. Absolutely. There are institutions in the world that enslave human beings for sure. Not a doubt about it. Okay. That being the case, then the question is what's the solution? The solution is, has to get to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is the fact that we're all born dead in trespasses and sins because we are direct descendants of Adam and Eve, and we need to repent and trust in the new Adam, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins and for life and restoration and to bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. But this is not; these are not the categories that they work in. So what happens is, is that um, liberalism, in a way, correctly identifies a lot of the problems in the world, but the solution is based upon a form of unbelief and a scoffing at what the Bible says. Because, well, of course, everybody knows conservatives take the Bible literally, so we can't do that because we're liberals. And, uh, and so this is the way they argue. And what ends up happening is, is that they become the exact mirror opposite of conservatives. And, um, but here's the problem. The thing that they're missing, for the most part, is the gospel. Now, oftentimes, I've made the claim here at, at Fighting for the Faith that liberalism is a byproduct, if you would. It's a byproduct of legalistic churches, not conservative churches, but legalistic churches. If you raise kids in nothing but law and no gospel, okay, where God is constantly angry and mad at them, and Jesus is constantly angry and mad at them if they, if they do not follow the latest moral blue laws and things like that, then what you're doing is you're raising the next generation of liberals. And what liberals are, it's kind of like people who've who cannot stand the withering heat of God's law. They don't believe that the gospel applies to them because it was never preached to them as Christians. And they know that God has something to do with love, and so they're haunted by Jesus, but they can't go back to taking the Bible literally because oftentimes they think that's the reason. If It was taking the Bible literally that led to me being oppressed and abused by religion. You see what I'm saying? So I think that's what we're listening to here. If you want an example of of you know reading a, a work by somebody who's a, a book by somebody who's made that switch they they grew up in legalistic all law no gospel religion and then ultimately found themselves in liberalism read Nadia Bowles Weber's book um Pastrix yeah she named yeah she named her, the book Pastrix after the uh, the word that I coined um but read her book Pastrix it's a fascinating biographical study if you would of somebody who grew up in hard, difficult, all law, no gospel legalism, and uh, where that has led her. In fact, that's a major part of understanding what's going on with liberals. It's in a lot of ways, liberalism doesn't exist in a vacuum. It re- it exists in reaction to oppressive legalistic religion where the gospel is not brought to bear in the name of Jesus. And so um and, and both 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 of those um 
versions of Christianity uh, suffer from be, from uh, not being true. Okay, so what you're listening to is somebody who is a you know basically a, a, a full blown emergent liberal, and you're hearing her frustrated at what's wrong in the world. And so, what's the solution? Well, we got to find a way to bring the kingdom of God here on earth to. Um, you know, because it was, what does Jesus say? You know, um, you, you pray, you know, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means bringing the kingdom to earth, right? This is how liberals think and act. So they're haunted by Jesus. They're haunted by some concept of God's love and grace and mercy, and they see beauty in the world and things like that. But the thing that can't get themselves to get to is the gospel because in order to do that you have to take the bible literally and the bible literally that's only what conservatives do and they they were burnt doing that so they can't do that we continue here's why you're a publisher right now if you're using the hashtag see in the wild you're publishing if you checked it on facebook at the search worship gathering you're publishing If you're writing a blog post or even responding to a blog post that somebody writes, you're publishing. It's really easy to get self-published in the world. Everyone's a publisher. Everyone has a stage. Everyone is used to having their own views represented. And so the internet, it allows us to kind of express what we're feeling very, very quickly, whether it's good or bad. And yet underlying all of this, I see greater and greater unhappiness in our world. Our communication is better than ever, but people seem more unhappy. Does that make sense to you at all? I would think about the simple fact that yesterday this picture was going around Twitter and Facebook um, of Muslims in Egypt lined up in the street, holding hands, protecting Coptic Christians so they could worship without being terrorized and bombed. That should start a conversation. But what's happened? What have we built? What do we yearn for? It's not here. There's such a disconnect between what we pray for and what is. I've had a couple of months to think about this. It's going to be a rough series for you. This kind of notion about Church in the Wild. There's a song called No Church in the Wild that we're going to listen to. Not yet. That's your tease. But I'm wondering what does church look like in the wild? Not inside, but where the disconnect is happening. So we have this story where the widow, she gives her entire livelihood, all of it. The wealthy In our story, they give from their surplus what's left over. But this widow, she gives it all in this moment. And a lot of people like this story. We hear this story at stewardship time. Just be like the widow. Give everything you have. We set her up as a model of faith. She had so much faith, she wanted to give everything. I don't like this story at all. It's a terrible story. I don't like a Jesus that would 
hold this woman up as a model, as a model of a system that oppresses people in this way. Stay with me here. What does the church do and why should the church teach about a woman who offers her tiny coins and all that she has as if that's what our God demands? This this kind of sacrifice so that that day she can't eat. That day she has nothing left. That's not my God. Does our God really demand from the poor of the world that they give everything but not from the rich? Do we not think that our loving God understands the situation where the poor of the world may not can give in that moment? But if we live in the systems that we've created as a church, then of course that's what we think. And maybe you're sitting there going, she's so great. I'm just, I'm not given enough. I don't want you to feel that way. Church sucks. If we're teaching that message, that's crummy. That's not a loving message. When we look around our our world and our city, our church and this room right here, right now, how many of us have had similar feelings? Oh, you know them. They're not giving enough. I know what kind of car they drive. I never see them put anything in the search basket. And maybe they're giving electronically, but I don't think so. Suzanne wears really expensive shoes. I hope she's given at least her shoe budget to the church. See? You're laughing because you've been thinking it. So-and-so isn't giving enough. This person should be doing more. This person didn't answer the phone when I called. This person didn't get back to me in what I thought was the appropriate time reference. We presume because of how we give to others that they should do likewise. It's very anti-God realm. It's very anti-Lord's Prayer, but it's very human of us. It's a message that the prophets have been sharing with us for a very long time. Remember the prophet Amos? I know that you've been reading Amos in your spare time. So I don't really have to go into a lot of it, which is good because my voice is, you know, teetering on the end. I don't even know how you're listening to me right now, but... In Amos, everybody likes to talk about justice rolling down like the waters, right? I like that one little phrase, but you should really read Amos because it's not about that all the time. Really focus on chapters four and five because in chapters four and five, Amos no holds barred. He finds, in fact, he yells at the rich who provide for a luxurious cult of a sanctuary. A beautiful building. A beautiful place where people can find God. But step over the poor to get in. 
He has this sense of the church fostering injustice that reduces others. In fact, he says this, because you run roughshod over the poor, you take the bread right out of their mouths. You're never going to move into luxury homes you've built. You will never even drink wine. That's sad. From the very expensive vineyards that you've planted. For God says, I know your violations. The enormity of your sins, and they are appalling. For what you do, you bully right-living people. You take bribes right and left, kicking the poor when they're down. I wonder if Jesus was thinking about Amos as he was telling the story of the widow. Okay, I'm going to pause right there. Okay, now you'll notice that in the liberal emergent postmodern mindset, you know, poverty, social justice is high on their radar. It's high on their things to solve in the world. Um, And there is nothing wrong with having an emphasis on charity and mercy and caring and feeding for uh, the poor and those in need. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Where it goes wrong, though, is that's not the gospel, okay? That's not how the kingdom of God is brought to human beings, poor or rich, doesn't matter. The gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins and was raised again on the third day for our justification. So the kingdom of God advances when rich or poor are confronted with their sins and brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So here she's got this text regarding Jesus commending this poor widow and her offering, and she can't get past this idea of what kind of a religious system would demand this of a poor widow to begin with. Well, the thing is, is that that was her gift, okay? That wasn't exacted from her. That's what she gave. So let me let me read one of the passages here. This this passage, you know, this story occurs in Mark as well as Luke. I'll read Luke's account. Luke chapter 21, verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on, all of it. Now, it doesn't say that this was exacted from her. This is what she gave. And while the rich were sounding their trumpets and bringing in all of their wealth and giving out of their abundance, here the small widow, she outgives them all. And how would Jesus know this? Because Jesus is God, and Scripture says that God loves a cheerful giver. This woman wasn't tortured She wasn't told, if you don't do this, you're going to burn in hell. It doesn't say anything like that. Instead, what does it, what, what's, note note what's going on here. Jesus, number one, saw her offering. Who was her offering to? It was to God. So Jesus sees her offering, knows the amount of her offering, and knows how much of her vast riches that offering amounted to in a percentage. And the answer to that percentage number was 100%. God noted it. 
Because that's who Jesus is. He's God in human flesh. Scripture says God loves a cheerful giver. There's nothing here of her being doing this at a whip, at the end of a whip. She's doing this, you know, in fact, where she's probably doing this is, you know, kind of in one of the outer courts. And God himself notes it. Okay? What she did in secret, what everybody else would have despised as just a mere small token gift, God commends as being greater than all of them. Greater than all of them. But in the liberal mindset, you say the word poor, and all of a sudden we're into a theological category, a theological category that they've got all this theology worked out, and she can't even see what's going on in this text because her theology is getting in the way of what this text says. James Smith wrote that when we give, when we offer all that we can, it is a haunting reminder of the economics that refuses the assumptions of our consumerist imaginations. It's not about money. It's about giving all we have in our heart. I think that's what Jesus was pointing to with this undesirable, unnamed woman in this passage, whom all were dismissing. She came and she gave it all away. But I still don't like it. But I, who cares if you don't like it? The fact that Jesus likes it and Jesus commends it and he's God in human flesh and proved it by bodily rising from the grave on the third day might want to tell you something. Um, your likes and dislikes are not in line with Jesus's likes and dislikes. When he praises something, you might want to stand up and pay attention. wonder, though, if Jesus was inviting us to stir our imaginations a bit, to imagine the realm of God, where all is shared on equal footing. That's what they did in Acts, remember? So if Jesus was pointing this out because he wanted us to all imagine a communist utopia? Yeah, I don't think so. They gathered together, sharing all of their possessions, eating, sharing the stories of life, taking care of the poor and the widow and the orphan, and then they went out from their doorstep to the ends of the earth. You remember that? Acts 2.42. We've forgotten that. We've forgotten our sense of mission. Our mission should be we want to make the world better. And that faith means you don't have to literally starve to make it better. No, faith is trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And loving and caring for your neighbor is the fruit of penitent faith in Christ. You're confusing the fruit with the root. I think we should all agree that that's not what God intended. I think also that our imaginations should be stirred towards solidarity in our community. I'm proud of our mayor who works tirelessly for the unsheltered homeless. I am proud of our congregation that puts grace bags together. I am proud of our work that we do at Tarrant Area Food Bank. But there's more to be done. Right. You have to do more than feed the poor. You need to tell them of their crucified and risen Savior and call them to repent of their sins and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Otherwise, when this temporal life is done, they're, well, then they're going to face spiritual poverty and hell for the rest of eternity if they don't trust Christ. We cannot rest. We're in this together. When one of us suffers so, we come together to make the world better here and now. 
this offering from this woman, you see, became a crucial moment. So imagine my surprise when my soul became stirred at the Wild Goose Festival. Not only by beer and hymns and the radical gift of a shower, but in learning about B corporations. A way to live into the stirring of God, bringing the realm of God here and now. Let's take a look at... B corporations are bringing the realm of God into the here and now? Really? How's that work? One company that you know of that has decided to be a B corporation and what that means. Yeah, talking about Ben and Jerry's. Created in partnership with the community of B corporations. I'm Rob Mahalik, the Global Director of Social Mission for Ben & Jerry's. And it's been uh, a real pleasure and honor for Ben & Jerry's to officially join the B Corp community for the reason that we have always believed that business should have a social purpose alongside of its economic and product or services purposes. And the B Corp community is a community of businesses. So Ben & Jerry's is bringing the kingdom of God into the here and now, really? Uh huh. Is that not only get that, but take that forward in a meaningful way to create sustainable business models that are really transformative capitalism. And so for us to be a part of that community is both exciting, uh, it's humbling at the same time because there's so many people with brilliant ideas that they're carrying forward. And we want to be a part of that community that can provide support and energy to grow the movement going forward. Here's what B corporations are. They are legally mandated to not only make money, but to make a social impact. They're fantastic. Hey, Jack, do you have that picture? So making a social impact is how the kingdom of God comes to earth? I don't think so. Patagonia is a B corporation. That means not only do they have sustainable business practices, they give back to communities. They make money and they give money. It's amazing. You can check them out. Hashtag be the change, the letter B, the change, and find out more. But it's amazing what they do. I literally think that this is kind of the vision that Jesus was talking about with the woman and the two coins. What does it look like for capitalism to get transformed into a B corporation? Um, sorry, but the uh, story of the woman and the two coins has nothing to do with B corporations or any other liberal social agenda. Mentality. The gospel reading today explores energy of possession and money. So I want to ask you a question. Do you see what's happening to you as an end or a means? to creating a good life. How can we pray the Lord's prayer, as Brian says, for the kingdom here and now and not endeavor to make it so? The wealthy are always going to be among us. So how is it that Patagonia, Ben and Jerry, Etsy's, and all these B corporations are bringing the kingdom of God on earth? They're not. They're not preaching Christ for the forgiveness of sins and calling sinners to repent and be forgiven. And so are the poor. And as the gap seems to be growing and getting bigger, we have to find a way to be the kingdom bringers, the realm of God bringers into the here and now. For reasons that we don't know, this woman 
places all that she has at God's disposal. Her generosity radiates among the ages and I think should inspire us towards being creative and imaginative about our neighbors and about ourselves. Jesus doesn't oppose commerce or innovation or creativity, but I think what he does here is he asserts all these gifts, all of these come from God. They're a divine source of blessing and they're moving towards shalom, towards peace. So that all of us can be... They're moving towards shalom? Did you sit under Rob Bell's teaching for years? ...together around a table of life. There is no room for hoarding. There is no room for irresponsible profit-making in Jesus' teaching. So sinners, let's go down and give all that we have. Take a look at this. So your solution is that we need to give all that we have, but the good news is that Christ has given himself for our sins. This is like, you know, a religion of social justice that's haunted by Jesus, but doesn't actually believe Jesus. Weird. So now we are going to end with a film reel from this year's Wild Goose Festival. So there you go. There was Church in the Wild, part one by Suzanne Castle. And it gives you a peek into the evacuated theology. And I mean evacuated. They've been, it's been evacuated of the true biblical categories of sin, repentance, the forgiveness of sins, Christ's penal substitutionary death on the cross. All of that's gone. And they've reimagined Christianity as the bringing of the kingdom of God to earth through social justice and sustainable business models and B corporations and stuff, rather than the kingdom coming to people who are brought to repentant faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. It's really that simple. And what causes this? Legalistic churches are the primary reason for this type of theology coming into existence. These are people who are haunted by Jesus, know something about God's love, but can't connect all of the dots. And they're very wounded in a lot of ways, and they're redefining Christianity, at least they think they are. They're redefining Christianity to take it away from that legalism that they grew up in, that they know there's something terribly wrong about it. But in the, in the meantime, they've gutted Christianity of its true message because they see that as part and parcel of the legalism and the angry God that they grew up under. Very, very sad indeed. So what do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.